Behold, O Lord, a lamb of your own flock, a sheep of your own fold, and a sinner of your own redeeming. Amen. Well, tonight I have set myself a difficult task. In the course of the next 15 or 20-ish minutes, I want to overturn a whole lifetime of spiritual practice. Uh, Tonight I want to persuade you to use individual confession and absolution because it is a powerful tool for fighting against sin. That's my thesis. Let me say it again. Tonight I want to persuade you to use private individual confession and absolution because it is a powerful tool, a powerful weapon Jesus gave you to fight against sin. Now, full disclosure, I did not grow up Lutheran, so I did not grow up doing that or using it. Um, I grew up as an evangelical, and in the evangelical world, we do not have the sense of uh, absolution that another brother or sister in Christ is authorized to say God's forgiveness, but we, we do know about James, who says, confess your sins to one another. So while we would often confess our sins in our heart to God, we also knew that, well, we should confess to others, as James says so, so we would have accountability partners which was normally some friend or peer, that we would confess our sins to them and they would confess their sins to us and we'd commiserate because you can't absolve each other, but you can commiserate and subtly reinforce your sins. When I was in high school, I met a friend who was an Orthodox and she talked about the spiritual benefit of going to her priest every so often. And in college, I read a little book by a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together. And in this book, there's a short chapter on confession and absolution. And it is a compelling statement of the role of this gift of Jesus in the life of the believer. Now, thus, when I became a Lutheran, and I thought, okay, Bonhoeffer's a Lutheran, so Lutherans must be all over this thing. Well, kind of. I mean, we have it in our small catechism. It's clearly defined. Confession consists of two parts. There is confessing of sins, and there is receiving of the absolution from the pastor as from God himself. We even have a right in our hymnal of private confession and absolution. But I quickly realized that Lutherans don't use it. And in 13 years as a Lutheran and six or seven years as a pastor, I think I can count on one finger the number of people who have come to ask me for private confession. It is a tool that has fallen into disuse. It's like an old medieval sword that was once used for battle, but now it sits in a glass case at a Lutheran theological museum. Sometimes it's perceived as too Catholic. Some are just unfamiliar with it. Some think it sounds scary and hard. Something that, or sometimes it's only talked about as something you use if you just can't, you know, handle your guilty feelings. So it gets kind of thought of as a therapeutic tool. But I find all this terribly unfortunate because rightly understood, it is a powerful tool for fighting against sin. And tonight I want to convince you that you should take this sword out of its case and use it to slay some zombies. To slay some zombies. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Bruick over there at the baptismal font talked to us about that death that we experience when we are buried with Christ in baptism and we are raised to new life through the powerful word of God. And Luther's fourth question in the small catechism asks about the use of that baptism in your daily life, that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sin and evil desires and a new man should arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. This daily dying and rising, this using of baptism, for Luther, this meant explicitly and directly private confession and absolution. He says this in the large catechism. You see that baptism comprehends the third sacrament, formerly called penance, which is really nothing else than a return to baptism. What is repentance but an earnest attack on the old creature and an entering into new life? 
an earnest attack on the old preacher. This is nothing other than the theology we just heard from Paul in Colossians chapter 3. Paul had just gotten done telling uh, the believers in Corinth how through their baptisms they had been buried with Christ and raised through faith. And now he tells them in chapter 3, you have died. In your baptisms, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And therefore, what do you do? You put to death what is earthly. Luther calls it the old Adam. But I think we actually have a pretty clear answer to things that have been killed, but are still kind of sort of alive and refuse to stay dead. Zombies. A couple months ago, I asked you to think of your sinful human heart as a Finding Nemo seagull. Mine. Mine, mine. Now I want you to add to that image. I want you to imagine the seagull as a zombie that has been drowned in baptism but refuses to stay dead. It refuses to stay under those waters. It wants to come back. It, it kind of resents the fact that it's been put to death, and it wants to kill you. And this, the, the power of this practice comes from a recognition of the power of sin. That sin is not a little blemish. It's not a whoopsie-daisy. It's a spiritual monster that wants to murder you. It is the, door, the demon lurking at Cain's door, the personal evil that attacks Jesus in the wilderness. That sin is your flesh struggling against your spirit, and it wants nothing less than your damnation. And so Paul talks about the Christian life not as sitting back and resting in baptism, but fighting, just like Luther, daily using, putting to death what is earthly, struggling, flesh versus spirit. Peter warns us that the devil is a prowling lion seeking for someone to devour. So the baptismal life is a battle, a struggle against sin. And Jesus gave us a whole bunch of weapons to use in this fight. But Luther saw the chief way as private confession and absolution. Now note the order of the logic carefully. Confession is not some good work you do to earn Jesus points. You've already been given all the Jesus points in your baptism. You've been given every merit and worthiness that belong to Jesus. You have been buried with him and raised with him. And precisely because you believe that, you fight. It's a struggle you undertake, an earnest attack you engage in because you believe the gospel that you are forgiven in Christ. And so you can dare, practically, you can confess your sins and you dare to do it only because you know that word that waits on the other side. It's that same word spoken to you in your baptism. Now, this is not a mere human-made tool. We didn't make this up. Jesus gave this to his church, the risen Jesus in John chapter 20, when he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness... This is a tremendous gift because it means that in our fellow Christians, we are not simply standing before another sinner, but we are standing before God when we confess our sins. And when that fellow Christian pronounces forgiveness, that's God's forgiveness. That's the power and authority of his church to hear and forgive and release sins. Now, the church has used this power in a whole bunch of different ways through history. There is a general corporate confession we use in our worship service. There is reconciliatory confession between two Christians, who, one who maybe one has hurt another. There's the secret confession in the heart that you, uh, that you might do on your own. And there's also, when there's church discipline, a general confession before an entire congregation. And it's important, while these all come from the same authority, they're not all the same thing. They don't walk you through the same process. General absolution, for instance, which Luther didn't actually conclude as part of his... Uh, service of the sacrament, it's a good liturgical practice. It's a valid thing, but it's not the same thing that James is talking about. James says, confess your sins. That is the things that you do, not your general state of sinfulness. It's also, well, in Acts, when we hear people confess their sins, they divulge their practices. 
And there's a spiritual reason for this. Getting to the hard, going through the hard, painful process of stating concrete sins. Because in general confession, while it can be sincere and it can be valid, you can also hide with it. Let me give you an example. Let's say I get really mad at my wife and I go to my friend and I complain about my wife and I insult her. And then I feel bad about it. And I realize that I'm wrong. And I go to my wife and say, babe, I know I'm a sinner. I've hurt you in so many ways. I'm so sorry. Would you forgive me? That's not a confession. That's me hiding behind a general confession. And so the danger with a general confession is that we might read those words without ever actually coming to terms with the real sins in our lives. And I've seen this as a pastor. Two people in the church who hate each other read those words and never once feel an ounce of thought, maybe I should go talk to that person I hate over there. So while the general confession is a good weapon, we should keep using it. It's more like a claymore sword from Braveheart. A giant, big sword that swings and cuts through everything. But precisely because it's so big, it can't cut precisely. That's what private confession is for. It's like a short sword or a dagger that hits those narrow gaps in the armor of your zombie seagulls. Because this unique power of private confession precisely comes from its particularity. The particularity of making your sins known and putting them to death. Now, in convincing you of this and this specific power, I'm just going to give you Bonhoeffer's argument. I'm completely just ripping it off from him. It convinced me, so I figured it could convince you. And Bonhoeffer says there's four things this does. In private confession, you break through to community, to real fellowship with other Christians. Why? Because, because sin by its very nature wants you alone and in the dark. It draws you away from community to be alone with yourself. It's what it did to Adam and Eve. First thing they see is that they're naked and they protect each other from themselves. Sin, that sin in your life that you would never dare confess to a brother or sister because you know they'd think you're weird. And so even though you're here in the community, you feel alone and you see yourself as alone because you don't think you can really be known for who you are, the actual real sinner that you are. And so sin leads us to put a pious face on, to dress up for church and show we're doing okay. We're only these like medium sinners like the rest of the people here. And sin wants us to think that we're not welcome here. We must be good people and we must conceal ourselves in hypocrisy in order to be welcome. But in private confession, we give up that last stronghold of self-defense. The sinner surrenders and stops pretending to be pious. We come clean before another human. And precisely in telling that truth, we drag those zombies out into the light and let that light put them to death. Because they are allergic to light. They are allergic to being known. And that sin is revealed and judged precisely as what it is, and it is forgiven precisely as what it is. And you stand in the church, in the community now, as the sinner that you actually are, freed and forgiven. So in private confession, Bonhoeffer says, you break through the sham of pious hypocrisy and are welcomed into true community, precisely as the sinner that you know yourself to be. But in confession, you also break through to participation in the cross, because the root of sin is pride. My prideful desire to exalt myself over God, to demand my right, my desires, my way. But confession is profoundly humiliating. It's the profoundest kind of humiliation. And that's what makes it so difficult. That's what makes it feel like dying. The zombie that you're killing is yourself. It is your own sinful self. Why would we dare humiliate ourselves like that? Because we know where Jesus humiliated himself to. We know that in the cross and the humility of the cross, in being known as the sinner, being publicly shamed as the fake and fraud Messiah, he saved the universe. 
And so, in confession, Bonhoeffer writes, we break through to true fellowship with the cross and we affirm and accept our cross in that mental pain and physical pain of humiliation before a brother, which means before God, we experience the cross as our rescue and salvation. The old man dies, but it is God who conquered him. And now we share in the resurrection of Christ and eternal life. That's the third thing we break through to, new life. Sin, by its nature, claims to be your master. It claims to be the tyrant who holds your future. Those addictive sins that you just can't get away from, that you think, I'm just going to always have to live with this. Yes, I know I'm forgiven, but I'm always going to be here. This is always going to be me. That's the lie that sin tells you. But in admitting and hating and confessing your sin, the link between your past and your future is once again broken by the real word of forgiveness, and Christ severs that inexorable bond that your sin makes over your future. The tyranny of sin is broken by the word of a fellow Christian. Just like in your baptism, you renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways, and Jesus pledges his allegiance to you. So in confession, we break through to community, to the cross, and to new life. And in these, we break through to certainty. This is probably the most profound point of it. Sin, by its very nature, consists of a movement of self-deception. Eve did not take the fruit until she had first convinced herself, against God's word, that it was desirable to make one wise. Paul talks about how the nations are given over to their own refusal to believe in the God that was evident to them. So, sin ever lives by its ability to clothe itself in pious desires, to convince us of the righteousness of its end and means. And so Bonhoeffer asks, kind of insightfully, why is it that we find it easier to do secret confession in our hearts to God, who is way more holy and blameless than any other human being, but we find it painful to confess to a brother? Is it not possibly because in that secret confession we are actually just confessing to ourselves and absolving ourselves? Yeah, I know I'm not perfect. No one's perfect. But the fellow Christian breaks that cycle of self-deception. When you confess in the presence of a brother or sister, you know you're no longer alone. You know you stand before God himself in that brother or sister, the one he sent to you who speaks the truth about who you are, and so you stand in the real light of God's judgment and forgiveness. Your fellow Christian has been given as a beautiful gift to you, that you might have certainty that your sin has actually been judged by God, and God's forgiveness has actually been applied to you. So precisely in this painful act, of confessing actual concrete sins, you break through the isolation of sin, the pride of sin, the tyranny of sin, and the self-deception of sin. So, some of you might be thinking, okay, pastor, I'm kind of halfway maybe convinced that I should maybe might do this. What do I do? What does this look like? Take out your hymnal. Take out your hymnal and turn to page 292. Because this is actually not that hard. This is actually not that hard. We actually have a right for this in our hymnal. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to send an email to me or to Pastor Brooke or Pastor Remford or to uh, Chaplain Matthias and schedule a 15-minute appointment of monthly confession for the next year. Do it for 12 months and then tell me that it doesn't make a difference. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, it's going to be super awkward. What do I do? Well, this right actually walks you through quite easily. It gives you the words to say, Pastor, please hear my confession. Sorry, we're on page 292. 292. Please hear my confession and pronounce forgiveness. It walks you through a general confession and then invites you. What troubles me particularly that is you read that and then you just tell the truth. Then you just let go and tell the truth. You stop hiding and you admit it. You don't have to do everything. You can't do everything. We know that. 
But you close by simply saying, I'm sorry for all this. And the pastor doesn't probe into all the inner recesses of your mind and your life. It's not counseling. It doesn't take that long. You're not trying to provide contextualizing stories that excuse it. You're just telling it. You're owning it as you. And then the pastor, in the stead and by the command of your Lord Jesus, puts his hand on your head and forgives you. Now, you could do this with a friend. You can do this in our family. My, I actually do this with my family in our evening prayers from time to time. We confess our sins to each other. You can do this with a friend that you know um, who you think is a mature Christian who can hear your confession. You can also do it with your pastors. And the reason I want to encourage you to seek out your pastors is because while your friends are, might be great and might be awesome, they might not be able to bear this. It might change your relationship in certain ways. Your zombies might hurt them. For an example, maybe, um, ladies, suppose that you confess to your friend that you coveted her bald husband. That's going to change your relationship, even if she forgives you. It's just going to. But your pastors made a vow to keep your confessions secret and take those things to the grave. We made a vow to bear and face those zombies with you. We're on the hook for offering it. My wife said, well, if this works, Nathan, you're going to have like a ton of people coming to your office and you're not going to have time to do anything. And I said, well, it'll be like the closest Lutherans ever get to a revival. And that'll be okay. (laughs) Now, some of you are thinking... Okay, Pastor, I don't want to confess my sins to you. You're going to think I'm gross. You'll see that I'm such a worse Christian than you. You're so awesome, and you'll look down on me. And that's why Pastor Brook offers this too. So, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's why I practice this myself. I would not dare ask you to seek this out. I did not regularly practice this myself. I've been doing it since seminary. I had a father confessor in Washington, and I asked my district president to find me one here in, in Nebraska. We do it with our family. I confess my sins to my wife, especially when I've sinned against her. And I do this precisely because I know those zombies that live in my heart. I see how they want to ruin my marriage, destroy my ministry, and hurt my family. And I also know how good I am at lying to myself. So I know there are more zombies that I've never even thought about. And I fight them for the sake of my, the people I love. I fight them for the sake of the people they hurt. And I fight them because I also know the power of God's forgiveness in the mouth of another Christian. The freedom that waits on the other side of that humiliation. The healing and restorative power that James talks about that comes from God's actual forgiveness. I've seen this power at work in my relationships. And thus I want to encourage you this night to take up this sword of private confession and fight those zombie seagulls. Not because it's a good work, not because it's a burdensome law you have to keep, but because Jesus thought you needed it. He knew you needed it. He knew that when he claimed your heart as his own, it would instantly come under siege of the one who used to control it. And you will spend your whole life fighting that fight until that day when he liberates you finally by the resurrection. But we fight that fight confident that he's already won it. He's going ahead of us into the battle and we can follow him and we can take our swords into the fray because we know he's already killed the greatest enemy. And so we do this by faith. So dear brothers and sisters, if you are losing the battle against sin, If you are tired and weary of hiding and pretending to be a better Christian than you actually are. If you find yourself alone in your sin, even in the midst of this great community. If you find yourself repeatedly unable to believe that you're actually truly forgiven. If you're tired of watching your zombies hurt the people you love. Then take up the sword and join the fray. Because Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for putting your healing and restorative word in the mouths of our fellow believers, for giving us an assurance of your judging and forgiving words through this gift of confession and absolution. 
We pray that by your spirit, you work in our hearts the courage and humility to use the gifts that you have given us, to see and to fight that sin in our world and to put to death all that stands against you. We ask that you carry us through this lifelong battle, knowing that nothing will ultimately free us until your son comes to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Help us and sustain us in it this day. Amen.